Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 10 of Spam 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 Humbug. And today you've actually just got me with Stan the Fury Dragon. Um, I'm recording this late. I'd actually meant to record this in Houston while I was there for some cybersecurity training, but that didn't happen. So I'm recording this, you know, back home. Um, hopefully I'll get it uploaded at least to Patreon tonight or ready for tomorrow morning and, and it'll be good. Well, I hope it'll be good. I mean, there's some subject matter that, you know, if I can get to it, great. Um, if not, there's a couple of other things I do want to talk about ahead of that. And those are good things, I think. We'll see if the uh, the ending part is as good as that. The first thing I want to talk about is something I've been sitting on for a little while, maybe a month now. Um, it's some information that came to light uh, by way of Reddit, actually. Uh, rumors surrounding the next Mass Effect game, and I'll call that Mass Effect 4 here when I need to, even though I, evidently that isn't what it's going to be called. And it's not, again, this isn't really something I can say is Ultima-related, although Mass Effect 4 does have, as its lead designer, a certain Mr. Ian Fraser, who I think we can all recognize as Tibby, Tiberius, Tiberius Moongazer, the, the project lead for Ultima, Ultima 5 Lazarus which we still need to do an episode about at some point. Anyways, the original rumor appeared on Reddit. Uh, there was some better formatting of it, and of course a ton of discussion about it on NeoGAF, and then additional coverage on Lazy Gamer and a couple of other sites. Basically, someone took a survey, and it contained a whole bunch of questions about a hypothetical new Mass Effect game, uh, you know, content for the game, features, systems, things like that which evidently mirrored, or sorry, was very similar to uh, a similar survey that was published about Dragon Age Inquisition, a lot of details from which ultimately came to be realized in the final version of that game. So it's kind of thought that this survey may have let slip a number of details about what Mass Effect 4 is going to be about. EA has been mostly tight-lipped about it to date, at least through official channels, um, as much as we've seen of it has been, you know, a couple of tweets of Bioware developers uh, sending out pictures of their friends working on the game. But even then, you can't really see the screenshots directly. Uh, you can't really glean anything about the game. Um, according to the survey, the idea is that it's going to be set in something, I believe, that's called the, the Helios Cluster. It's essentially another galaxy. The events of the game will evidently happen coincident with those of the first trilogy, but very far removed. Humanity has somehow come to this new galaxy and is beginning to explore and populate it. <clears throat> it's a very long article, or it's a very long, you know, discussion. Uh, there's a ton of details that were actually leaked out um, via Reddit. And I don't want to talk about all of them because that would take way too much time. There's two in particular that I really want to draw attention to. The first is the dialogue system. The, it's mentioned that, you know, the dialogue system will build upon the rich history of strategic dialogue that has defined the Mass Effect series to date. The usual Bioware boilerplate about meaningful choices in every conversations with additional deeper control through the ability to interrupt and change the course of the conversation as it's happening. We saw this in Mass Effect 2 and 3, the ability to make action-based choices, like pull out a gun and force someone to do something. 
instead of convincing them through, you know, conversation. Um, the action-based choices will hopefully give players more options for how to approach dialogue with characters in the game and can lead to more extreme outcomes on the story as it evolves around those decisions. The other thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, the promise of seamless travel through this new area of the Mass Effect universe. Your spaceship, the Tempest, evidently it's called, uh, can travel between hundreds of solar systems that are seamlessly connected. You'll be able to explore planets, uh, gather resources, find intelligent life, encounter conflict and alien technology. Uh, you'll have the opportunities, of course, to use these things to increase your character's power, your ship, uh, and your team. Build them into something that reflects your game gameplay style. What's really interesting, though, is that intent seems to be that transitions between activities, flying the Tempest to land on a planet, jumping into the Mako, that ponderous land tank is that we all love, except those of us who hate it, but I love it, uh, is making a comeback. So, you know, the idea is you fly to a planet, you land on it, you jump into the Mako, you explore it, maybe you have to jump out of the Mako and deal with something. This should all happen smoothly without loading screens. Now, the first Mass Effect game featured planetary exploration as well. You could tool around in the Normandy, uh, hop from world to world, find a planet, drop the Mako down on it, go driving over the surface of it, hop out of the Mako, go and explore it. Uh, granted, a lot of the time, one planet was mostly the same as another. There were some enemies to kill, maybe a, a base or a roving vehicle to find, some resources or technology to trip over, a Thresher Maw, something. And a lot of the bases that you did find used the same interior level design, uh, with only minor cosmetic changes here and there. But even with those limitations, it, it, it added a particular depth to the game. You felt like you had a universe, or at least a galaxy, to explore. Mass Effect 2 and 3 also boasted different star systems uh, when it came to moving between planets, and in particular, or but in particular rather, featured far fewer opportunities to just get out and explore a piece of each world that you encountered. It was one of the things I missed in those games, uh, as opposed to, or as compared to, the original Mass Effect. Even when the planetary environments in the first game were bland and uninteresting, the opportunity to set foot on them and explore them, some alien world, for no other reason than it was there, it was good that we were able to do that, and I kind of missed that aspect in, in the later games. Not that there weren't still planets to explore in the later games, but, you know, it was basically much more the, the mission-critical ones. It was never just, oh, hey, here's a random planet. So it's nice to see the feature making a comeback, uh, and then in a big way, it's even better that it'll be, hopefully, a seamless thing, which I hope is realized as well as we've seen in the trailers and gameplay footage for No Man's Sky. The dialogue system is also something I actually do kind of have high hopes for, uh, just based on some stuff that Ian said when I met him in Baltimore, uh, shortly before he was hired by Bioware, actually. He didn't really elaborate too much, um, but he did mention that he'd been, you know, toying with some ideas about morality systems in games, and in particular with ways to improve upon the Bioware formula. So it'll be interesting to see what innovations, if any, he's able to bring to the series in that respect.
Now, given that it was the 25th anniversary of Ultima 6 last week, uh, I I think it would actually be appropriate to have a specifically Ultima 6-focused episode and discussion with the entirety of the SSSH team, so I won't really give too many thoughts about the game proper here. Uh, but there are a few thoughts I wanted to share in light of a discussion about the game that emerged um, on the Ultima Dragons Facebook page. Um, you know, I posted a link marking the 25th anniversary of the game, and a discussion uh, kind of emerged around that. Um, a lot of people chiming in to, you know, say uh, few games have matched Ultima 6 in the last 25 years. People saying this is my favorite Ultima. Some people can't believe that it's been 25 years. Um, the one thing I think that really jumped out at me was that, you know, for a lot of people, this seemed to be, like, this really stood out as their first Ultima. Certainly it was my first Ultima. And it was interesting to see that a number of people had had that same experience. I, And maybe I haven't you know, just maybe I haven't uh, heard this, heard from enough people. Maybe I haven't um, met you know, Ultima Dragons to really, you know, get the clearest picture here. But it seems to me that, you know, people's, because really, I mean, the audience for Ultima grew every time. But it seems to me that, you know, a lot of the people who really talk about it came to Ultima with, you know, very particular games. I mean, there are people who've been with the series since Akalabeth. There are people who've been uh, with the series, with the series since Ultima 4. Um, I know a lot of people, actually, who came to the series through Ultima 8, and also through Ultima Online. Um, and Ultima 6 also seems to be, to be one of those as well. It was certainly, I think, the Ultima where everything changed. You know, Ultima 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, I mean, they're, you know, each successive one improves upon the formula set out by the one before it. And then, of course, Ultima 4 introduces this whole new paradigm of, you know, instead of just being a hack-and-slash dungeon crawler with a surface level, um... Now, all of a sudden, there's much more thought to the plot, and there's this introduction of the system of the virtues, and, of course, that all gets explored more in Ultima V when we look at, you know, what happens when the virtues become law, uh, and, of course, twisted and corrupted as well. And then with Ultima VI, of course, we really get, you know, again, the heavy social issues, things like racism. Um, so, you know, from Ultima IV onward, obviously, the stories that Ultima told matured significantly but you know ultima 3 ultima 4 ultima 5 is still that top-down tiled engine the world gets bigger some new features get introduced we had the rudiments of interactivity for example in ultima 5 but you know fundamentally there was kind of this design consistency between the first five ultimas and then all of a sudden ultima 6 comes along and upends that um I can't imagine what an experience that must have been for, you know, people who had grown up with the series and then came to play it and found that, you know, whoa, Britannia is being presented to us in a totally different way. For me, that's really all I ever knew Britannia as. I mean, I 
which left me at a bit of a disadvantage in some respects, right? Because, you know, I really struggled to adapt to how it was portrayed in the earlier games. It was much easier to just, you know, accept it as it had been in Ultima 6 and then move on to, you know, Ultima 7 um, and then again Ultima 9. <clears throat> Serpent Isle and Ultima 8 obviously didn't happen in Britannia. So, yeah, this was, you know, it's significant, I think, for for that reason. For one, well, for a couple, I mean, for the fact that people, a lot of people seem to have come to the series through that game, found it to be in some way, you know, life-changing. Certainly, I'd argue that that's true for myself. And that it also redefined what we thought of uh, an Ultima as. <coughs> and in particular, excuse me, um, really laid the foundations for the things that we now think of as being, you know, essentially Ultima, that open world sandbox interactivity, um, <coughs> open-ended plot that you can pursue in just about any order. All of those things were, were there in Ultima 6, uh, and profoundly so, and um, yeah, so 25 years ago, uh, how we looked at and explored Britannia and Ultima changed forever, and uh, I think that was worth remarking on. Alright, so this next part might get a little, I don't know. One of the reasons that I regret not having done this in Houston was the fact that uh, I had time alone with my thoughts as a result, and that's always a dangerous thing. Um, having been in Houston all week, uh, I didn't actually take the time to keep up with the various podcasts that I normally listen to. Uh, among other, among others, I follow several of Father Roderick Von Hogan's podcasts. Um, he runs the StarQuest Production Network, SQPN. Um, if you saw the YouTube video of the priest geeking out over the new Star Wars trailer, uh, yeah, that's him. So, you know, uh, and a lot of my, I like the guy. I mean, yeah, okay, you know, he's a Catholic priest. He does talk about Catholic theology a little bit. But, you know, he has um, he has a podcast called Geek Week, which is, like, all about tech and um, yeah, just good geek material. He talks about tech and movies and interesting books and TV shows and, you know, just geeks out about it. It's good stuff. And then specifically for the gamers, he also has another thing that he does, another podcast called Pixel Play, which actually he uh, co-hosts with uh, another guy named Erwin Vohlar, who uh, is a video game researcher actually in, in the Netherlands. Uh, Father Roderick is himself a priest in the Netherlands. So 
Anyways, in the latest episode of his weekly The Break podcast, he got to talking about a book called The Founder's Dilemmas by Noam Wasserman, which basically, as he relates, it deals with the questions faced by uh, both by those who are about to start a new venture and also those who you know must discover what to do to keep their venture going once it finds its footing. And the big questions that he highlighted as being topics of the work include asking, well, what was our initial mission? Where are we now? And where are we going? And unfortunately, I had a lot of time to muse upon these thoughts. Or rather, I guess... I mean, like I said, I didn't really I didn't really pay attention to the podcasts all the time I was down in Houston. But then I'm listening to The Break, and I'm listening to him go through this summary... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, ...of Wasserman's writing... And I realized that I had been asking myself a lot of those questions actually lately. I mean, we're actually past the 10-year mark for the Codex now, as much as I struggled to believe that or not. Not the Codex itself. I mean, ultimacodex.com has existed since 2012, at least in my iteration of it. But then, of course, there was Ultima Era before that. And that started a little over 10 years ago. Um, and you know I think the initial mission of the site has been far exceeded I mean initially all I wanted to do was create another repository um, to mirror the content at the reconstruction Voyager Dragon site and I did that for about four years before I started to focus a little more seriously on the site, started to, you know, think about where, um, did I want it to be more? Started to, you know, ask, well, hey, what's Lord British been up to? What have some of the other Ultima developers been up to? Um, <clears throat> a lot of Ultima fan projects, of course, gone silent, gone dormant, gone out. Uh, others had been completed, others were nearing completion. It was, you know, simultaneously a kind of heartbreaking time, but an interesting time. Um, and, you know, so about 2008, the site started to grow as I started to actually branch out its content to not just be about um, what the Ultima fans are doing, but Ultima in general and what the people who created it are up to now. And, of course, in 2010, we had Mythic reaching out. Um... <clears throat> Soon thereafter, we had Portalarium reaching out, um, finding out that, you know, people working with the Ultima property at EA, Ultima Online, uh, spiritual successor to Ultima, you know, they all knew about the site. They all used the site, and especially the Ultima Wiki. Um, that was, you know, simultaneously elating and, and humbling to realize. And then, of course, most recently, uh, I switched jobs. I have a growing family. And, I mean, obviously, you know, one needs to provide for one's family. I loved what I did. <coughs> Goodness. I loved what I did at uh, Honeywell, my, my former employer. But it wasn't making ends meet. And so, you know, I took on this new role uh, with a new company. 
And it's been good in a lot of respects, but of course, one thing I did lose was, you know, I did lose my commute. I did lose a big chunk of time that I would have normally had to put into the codex to write content for it, to uh, post content to it. And, you know, as, as much as I've been able to kind of keep things floating along for the last year and a half or so, it's become a struggle. And it's become a struggle in a few different respects. I mean, one, I, I can't keep it up to date as regularly as I'd like to. I, I have tried and that doesn't happen. It doesn't work. More than that... Um, more than that, even what I try to do, uh, oh crap, how do I want to phrase that? The codex has, I think as a result of the fact that, you know, now I'm basically just playing this continuous game of catch up. It's really become all consuming in its own respect. It's become something that, you know, um, I mean, I, I work on, I work with because people do find value in it and I'm glad that they do. And I, I do want to keep up with that. But at the same time, um, it's become very all consuming and there's really not a lot of room left in my life for other projects, for other things. I mean, you know, obviously work is something I do. Um, and, you know, family definitely takes precedence uh, when it comes to such things. Or when it comes right down to it. But once those responsibilities have discharged, once, you know, my workday is done and I've kissed my kids and tucked them into bed and, um, you know, spend some time with my wife, uh, it's there, there's very little time left to really pursue, um, the codex in general, let alone some of the other things that I'd really like to explore. Um, Especially, you know, um, because there are things that I would like to start teaching my kids about, you know, like, well, hey, you know, yeah, it's great that we can all play these games. Where do they come from? How do they design them? Well, here, you know what? Here are these frameworks that you can learn easily. I'd like to show you how if you want to learn. Or heck, even just, you know, um, <laughs> there's just things I'd like to write, things I'd like to do, things I'd like to be able to work on. Um, outside of the codex while still keeping the codex a thing. What was interesting about this episode of the, the break was that in addition to talking about, you know, just the content of the founder's dilemmas, um, Father Roderick, I mean, he also, he's a Catholic priest, so he got into, you know, topics that kind of tied into that from a theological perspective. Um, 
two things in particular, actually, that he said really resonated with me. I mean, the first he talked about, you know, the idea of confession uh, in, in, in the Catholic sense, the sacrament of reconciliation, and the idea that, you know, it's not really meant to be a guilt trip. It's not really meant to be an, exer an exploration of, you know, your own shame at what you've done. Um, it's really meant to be a beginning. It's meant to be, you know, a, a casting off of burden. And, uh, and a step through into something new, and you know, a new life beyond that. And the other thing that he talked about was that, you know, um... I don't know how theological I want to get with this, but, you know, he, he made the point that, you know, when you're genuinely in communion with God, when you're genuinely in a place where, you know, you are doing what you as a person are, are called to do, you as a person are... Um, gifted to be able to do in, in a manner that, you know, aligns with God's plan. That's where inner peace comes from. And one thing I think I can say for sure is that I've definitely been lacking that sense of inner peace dealing with the codex and dealing with <coughs> keeping it up to date. Um, just, uh, <laughs> oh, heck, just... I don't want it to be something that's frustrating. I don't want it to be something that's a struggle. I don't want it to be this great burden that's hanging over my head. At the same time, I don't want to walk away from it. But that means, I think, that, you know, something, and I'm not sure quite what yet, things are probably going to change a little bit around the Codex. I mean, I, I, I love doing the podcasting, still, I think, going to be pursuing that. I hope that I'm able to uh, find ways. I have a couple of things in mind as to, you know, ways I can maybe keep more up to date with the news as it happens, um, but then also still keep some time for, for working on um, other projects or even just playing a game. Uh... But yeah, if, uh, I guess, if I, if I had to put it in any particular way, I guess, you know, what I'm saying is that it's not something that I can continue to do alone. And if, um, I shouldn't say it that way. Because there are people that help. I mean, Golden Flame Dragon does a lot of behind-the-scenes edits. <coughs> Goodness. Um, Golem Dragon, of course, posts 
some Shroud of the Avatar related stuff on the weekends. Um, usually tracks their updates. But, I mean, you know, I, most of the content does come from me. Um, I write and find most of it. And <clears throat> it's not something I think that I can really keep up with as well going forward. You know, I, I think about what our friends at the Wing Commander CIC have, um, because there's a few of them, and they <clears throat> like I mean they've gosh, it's been years of continuous posting for them, um, constantly lots of stuff to report uh, and lots of ability seemingly to report it. but that's because they have. A few, you know, different people. I mean, Chris Reed certainly carries a lot of the burden over there, but there's also Chris V. Um, <clears throat> Loaf still posts things sometimes. Um, you know, they have a, a small cluster of people that are able to really. Uh, Uh, to, to, you know, keep the content coming. Loaf, Ben Lesnick, there's Barry Almond, there's Chris Van Eck. I hope I didn't butcher that. There's Jason McHale, Chris Reed, as I mentioned, Brandon Strevel, Strevel, um, and Aaron Dunbar. You know, <clears throat> seven guys conspire to, to, to run that site. And, uh, and they run it exceptionally well. I've been trying to run the codex as well as that for a number of years, and I don't think I'm at a point anymore where I can. But at the same time, I don't want to, you know, disappoint people because that's the feedback I get, I think, more than anything else is, you know, just how valuable the codex is to people. And it's, you know, people I don't know from Adam will happily admit this to me on Facebook, on Twitter. I've had, you know, published authors tour authors come and say oh hey the codex i love that site i check it all the time and it's like really that, that's that's amazing to me and yet <clears throat> i uh i struggle so yeah i don't uh i don't quite know what and i don't quite know how and i don't quite know um how long, but I, I think I'm going to have to start making some changes to how I approach the codex, to how I find time to post to it, um, perhaps even in how I post to it, and um, because I am not at peace, and I need to be, and I need to find time to not just be consumed by this thing that I have created. I need to find a way to keep it going, but also keep myself. <clears throat> Anyways. Uh, okay. So that was a little bit more frank than maybe I wanted it to be, but anyways. Um... 
as I said, I still want to do these podcasts. I actually have a lot of fun doing them. So uh, I don't actually have any shout outs, you know, pending in advance. Um, Father Roderick, if you're listening, here's to you. Um, because I think I took some real inspiration from how you approached um, what is now, I guess, your penultimate episode of The Break. <sighs> but anyway, if you are listening, always remember, uh, if you'd like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, send an email to ultimacodex at gmail.com or use the contact form on the codex proper. Um, you can use that to suggest podcast topics, offer commentary, criticism, um, or volunteer your time as an occasional or regular contributor to podcast sessions. And I'll say this too, if for whatever reason you feel like helping out with the Codex and, you know, this on a regular basis, um, <clears throat> I certainly have the mechanisms in place to allow for, you know, better team collaboration in terms of what content to post. Uh, and when, I mean, I'm not expecting you to go out and curate content. I've actually got a system in place whereby, um, you know, like I can continue to curate content and save it to pocket and then ensure that, you know, you have access to a quip document that has links to this stuff that I find. Um, obviously if you find your own, you know, Ultima related content, by all means continue to, uh, you know, by all means feel free. But anyways, I'm digressing uh if you would like to help out with the codex help out more um you can also send an email ultimacodex at gmail.com and as well if you haven't already you should totally sign up with the ultima dragons group on facebook and or the one on google plus uh and or contribute to the udic hashtag if you're on twitter um we are dragons and we will always be make it known and finally of course there's the ultima codex patreon campaign a five dollar pledge will get you access to the spam 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 humbug episodes the day before they go live on the codex proper um, and of course that's how you know you can help me maintain and with sufficient funding actually expand the server infrastructure of the codex to better deliver all the things you come looking for there at that's all i've got for this week um, all the best to you and yours be virtuous.